If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of October 8, 2023. The podcast that invented artificial stupidity. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's spatulate the news of the bogus. We'll start off with another excellent piece on AI, this time from a very unexpected source. It's related to a story we've covered that we're going to be updating in the final segment, where some stupid authors got triggered because they claimed their books were part of a corpus used to train AI. Not only are they completely confused about how AI works, they're completely confused about how copyright works as well. Here's the thing. Once you've released a work into the world, you have basically no control over how people are going to use it. And that includes using it for things you don't like, or even using them for immoral purposes. You can denounce the bad behavior, but you can't actually do anything to stop it. And that point has been brought to AI after The Atlantic released a searchable database of one of the corpuses OpenAI used in the training of ChatGPT. Cue the screeching about how awful it is that these works were used without permission. But once you release it, you lose control over it. You can't really control who reads it, person or machine. And you lose control over what they choose to do with it. If they use what they learn in your work to do something else, and you don't like what they did, again, you can denounce it, but it's wrong to try and stop it. But one of the authors went a different way. Ian Bogost is actually happy that his works were used to train AI. He wrote, I was mystified at first by the Sturm und Drang response, and by the claim that generative AI is powered by mass theft. One of the facts and pleasures of authorship is that one's work will be used in unpredictable ways. Readers, or viewers, or listeners not only can but must make sense of that work in different contexts. A lack of permission underlies all of these uses, as it underlies influence in general. When successful, art exceeds its creator's plans. But internet culture recasts permission as a moral right. The book's three imbroglio reflects the same impulse to believe that some interpretations of a work are out of bounds. Who am I to say what my work is good for, how it might benefit someone, even a near-trillion-dollar company? To bemoan this one unexpected use for my writing is to undermine all of the other expected uses for it. Speaking as a writer, that makes me feel bad. And as he points out, the entire reason why the corpus exists in the first place is to make it so that not just big corporations like Meta and Google are able to train AI. Quote, The Books 3 database was itself uploaded in resistance to the corporate juggernauts. The person who first posted the repository has described it as the only way for open-source grassroots AI projects to compete with huge commercial enterprises. He was trying to return some control of the future to ordinary people, including book authors. And he agrees with sensible people that the whole idea of intellectual property has gotten completely out of hand. Quote, Theft is an original sin of the Internet. Sometimes we call it piracy. Other times it's seen as innovation when Google processed and indexed the entire Internet without permission, or even liberation. AI merely iterates this ambiguity. 
And he points out the pretentiousness of it all. Quote, I became an author because language offers a special medium for experimenting with ideas. Words and sentences are malleable. Texts arise from basements of subtext. What I say embraces what I don't and makes room for what you read. Once bound and published, boxed and shipped, my books find their way to places I might never have anticipated. As vessels for ideas, I hope, but also as doorstops or insect execution devices or as the last inch of a stack that holds up a laptop for an important Zoom. Or even, even, as a litany of tokens, chunked apart to be reassembled by the alien mind of a weird machine. Why not? I am an author, sure, but I am also a man who puts some words in order amid the uncountable others who have done the same. If authorship is nothing more than vanity, then let the machines put us out of our misery. It's the nature of information for people to read it and do whatever they want with it. And yes, that includes robots. It was that way from the very start of the internet. And yet, even legacy media sites like CNN and the New York Times have started blocking AI scanning bots. I guess that's just one more bit of proof that this is part of the last gasp of a dying old guard. When you realize the meaning of Bogost's words, you understand the sheer hubris these authors are demonstrating, as if their writings were holy writs of dogma and any unauthorized use is a sacrilege. And that just exposes them all as nothing but pathetic control freaks. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. What do I keep saying about the whole protect the children mantra? All of the stuff it's used as a magical incantation to try to intrude on has tons of legitimate purposes and government regulation won't stop the harm anyway. The only way to protect kids is to target the people trying to actually do bad stuff to kids, not regulate beneficial technologies like encryption or AI. But that's just the problem with COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act. The danger to kids online, which is real but way overstated, isn't at all prevented by government infringing on the First Amendment in the name of protecting them. 
COSAL would allow the FTC and state AGs to sue anyone if they don't feel they're doing enough proactively to protect children online. And that just opens the door wide for exactly the kind of abuses we've seen these last few years to happen to a much larger degree and on a much larger scale. For proof, just look at how it's being used as a call both from the left to act against so-called right-wing extremism and from the right to act against LGBT activists. More fundamentally, the act will actually harm minors by weakening privacy. As I've pointed out before, how is any regulation that requires ISPs, social media sites, and so on to take certain actions based on whether the person is a minor going to succeed unless they can find out that the person is a minor? And how can they do that without invading the privacy of minors? What would serve to better protect minors, and the rest of us for that matter, is stronger privacy protections. That would be far better than forcing websites to have a duty of care towards minors, and yes, the legislation specifically says it's a duty of care. And keep in mind, kids absolutely do have privacy and First Amendment rights. And also, as I've pointed out, having the kind of privacy which includes not requiring sites to give up everything to parents, as COSA does, would better enable children of abusive parents to reach out for help. That's the very reason why over 90 human rights organizations have sent an open letter to Congress opposing COSA. Quote, COSA would require online services to prevent a set of harms to minors, which is effectively an instruction to employ broad content filtering to limit minors' access to certain online content. Content filtering is notoriously imprecise. Filtering used by schools and libraries in response to the Children's Internet Protection Act has curtailed access to critical information such as sex education or resources for LGBTQ plus youth. Online services would face substantial pressure to over-moderate, including from state attorneys general, seeking to make political points about what kind of information is appropriate for young people. While parental control tools can be important safeguards for helping young children learn to navigate the internet, COSA risks subjecting teens who are experiencing domestic violence and parental abuse to additional forms of digital surveillance and control that could prevent these vulnerable youth from reaching out for help or support. And by creating strong incentives to filter and enable parental control over the content minors can access, COSA could also jeopardize young people's access to end-to-end -end encryption technologies, which they depend on to access resources related to mental health and to keep their data safe from bad actors. While COSA has laudable goals, it also presents significant unintended consequences that threaten the privacy, safety, and access to information rights of young people and adults alike. The EFF also warned about the harms that could, and most certainly would sooner or later, arise from giving state AGs wide powers to act based on broad interpretations of the law. Quote, Deciding what designs or services lead to these problems would primarily be left up to the Federal Trade Commission and 50 individual state attorneys general to decide. Ultimately, this puts platforms that serve young people in an impossible situation. Without clear guidance regarding what sort of design or content might lead to these harms, they would likely censor any discussions that could make them liable. To be clear, though the bill's language is about designs and services, the designs of a platform are not causing eating disorders. 
As a result, COSA would make platforms liable for the content they show minors, full stop. It will be based on vague requirements that any attorney general could, more or less, make up. COSA could result in loss of access to information that a majority of people would agree is not dangerous. Again, issues like substance abuse, eating disorders, and depression are complex societal issues, and there is not clear agreement on their causes or their solutions. The same issue exists on both sides of the political spectrum. COSA is ambiguous enough that an attorney general who wanted to censor content regarding gun ownership or Christianity could argue that it has harmful effects on young people. And I'm not the only one who observed the contradiction I mentioned earlier, quote, Age verification mandates create many issues. In particular, age verification mandates undermine anonymity by requiring all users to upload identity verification documentation and share private data, no matter their age. Other types of age assurance tools, such as age estimation, also require users to upload biometric information, such as their photos, and have accuracy issues. Ultimately, no method is sufficiently reliable offers complete coverage of the population, and has respect for the protection of individuals' data and privacy and their security. A platform could, alternatively, skip age verification and simply institute blocking and filtering of certain types of content for all users regardless of age, which would be a terrible blow for speech online for everyone. It leaves platforms with no choices except to institute heavy-handed censorship and age verification requirements. These impacts would affect not just young people, but every user of the platform. But it's just what we've seen before in the EU and other places. Politicians want power and control, and they want to be able to censor. And with things like that pesky First Amendment getting in the way, the only way they can get it past everyone these days is... Think of the children! Just like 20 years ago it was terrorism, the decade before that it was drug dealers, and before that it was those damn Ruskies. Who knows what it'll be 20 years from now. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home. And don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. Let's talk about something a bit more hopeful. We've been, on occasion, talking about the latest innovations in encryption as they become more and more available to the end user. And the future everyone's looking towards is quantum computers. 
In the past, we knew that the hashing and encryption algorithms we were using were going to be broken by computers just a few years ahead, Moore's Law being what it is. But then, the technology started improving by leaps and bounds to the point where it'll take classical computers centuries, if ever, to get to the point where they can reliably break today's encryption. But quantum computing is another story. In addition to Grover's algorithm, which will basically cut the key strength in half, and by that I mean half the bit length, not the overall strength, and of course that makes it exponential, there's Shor's algorithm, which will go through many of the algos we rely on today, like tissue paper. That includes all of the privacy-enhancing elliptic curve protocols you rely on every time you connect to your bank, or basically anywhere else online. One group of researchers caused a bit of a panic, claiming they can break 2048-bit RSA encryption with a quantum computer. While cooler heads are incredibly skeptical, the reality may be one that isn't a matter of if, but when. It may be that the issues quantum developers are facing are insurmountable, and quantum computers will be limited by the laws of physics to a certain bit strength. But that's not known for sure, and cybersecurity researchers don't like to take unnecessary chances. And when it comes to protecting our communications from being broken by quantum computers, there's no better time than right now. David Joseph of AI and quantum research company Sandbox AQ said, quote, We know for a fact that store now decrypt later attacks are happening right now, and their frequency will only increase the closer we get to delivering a fault-tolerant quantum computer. Once encrypted data has been exfiltrated, there is no way to protect it from future decryption and exploitation. Yes, there are hackers, governments, all sorts of people who are grabbing your encrypted conversations right now in the hopes that they'll be able to decrypt them sometime in the future. Elliptic curve cryptography gives us forward secrecy, which means they're protected against the server's key being stolen in the future. But if a quantum computer can break the very cryptography itself without needing a key, that'll be a problem. Post-quantum cryptography means algos that run on a classical computer but are protected from cracking by a quantum computer. We've gone over the efforts to develop and implement these post-quantum algos before. Now, they're maturing to the point they're being delivered to the end user. For example, Google just started including X25519 Kyber768 in the encryption algorithms Chrome can use when connecting to a server that supports it. That's a hybrid algorithm that can protect against classical attacks with elliptic curve 255.19 while using NIST winner Kyber 768 for protection against quantum attacks. Peter Membry, chief engineering officer at ExpressVPN, said, quote, A hybrid approach means that users are safe from attacks by classical computers without relying on post-quantum algorithms, and they also have the best chance we know of today of being safe from attacks by quantum computers. Post-quantum algorithms are still relatively new unless battle-tested. By leaving classical cryptography in the hands of existing tried-and-true standards, we can ensure any unforeseen issues with post-quantum algorithms don't impact the security or integrity of the broader cryptographic infrastructure and, by extension, the security of users. In a similar vein, secure messaging app Signal has employed the post-quantum algo Crystal's Kyber in addition to their elliptic curve cryptography to secure users from both classical and quantum attacks. So if you're wondering what you can do to secure yourself from future attacks by quantum computers, the answer seems to be simple. 
keep your browser and all of your other apps up to date. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to esterify this week's biggest bogan emitter. And this week, it goes to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals for just increasing the confusion in the Missouri v. Biden case. We covered back in July when they made an absolutely unhinged ruling where they completely failed to recognize long-standing precedent about when government activity crosses the line into coercion and intimidation of the kind that can turn what appear to be simple requests into First Amendment violations. In fact, their ruling was all over the place, saying that the White House, FBI, and CDC were coercive, while CISA, the State Department, and NIAID weren't. Don't get me wrong, the first part of that is astoundingly good. The Biden administration is doing nothing less than a veritable onslaught against the First Amendment, silencing numerous forms of dissent. The problem is, they didn't do what they should, what the lower court basically handed to them, and show the line in the sand. As we covered, the lower court ruling is very well reasoned and covers pretty much everything the government can and cannot do when making such requests of social media companies. The Supreme Court hasn't helped. Alito put the ruling on a temporary hold, meaning the government can continue their obvious censorship, and then extended that to September 27th. After that, Alito just didn't do anything, leaving the question of, what does that mean? Is the ruling in place? Does the hold continue indefinitely? And so the Fifth Circuit renewed the injunction, including CISA, which is good because they all need to be included, but without any real explanation. I don't know what kind of line they're trying to walk right now, but they're taking a clear case of First Amendment violation and introducing a whole heaping helping of confusion. I'm sorry, I really want to congratulate the Fifth Circuit here for the good parts of the ruling, which are excellent. But those good parts are just long-standing precedent that no reasonable jurist could deny. It's the fact that they're not going all the way with it that's infuriating. In fact, the last time I encountered that many curves and loopholes was when I was on a ride at Carowinds. And if nothing else, it delayed the Supreme Court hearing the case and is just allowing much of the government to continue censoring in the meantime. They might have to switch agencies to get around the injunction, but that won't be any real issue. So all of that makes the Fifth Circuit this week's Biggest Bogan Emitter. I 
want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot TV. And now let's catechize this week's... And this week it goes to Paul Tremblay, Sarah Silverman, and the other plaintiffs in the completely bogus case against OpenAI. New authors keep being added as plaintiffs, including John Grisham and George R.R. R. Martin. Basically, OpenAI is making a very strong case for fair use, and the plaintiffs are calling fair use a, quote, urban legend. We covered all of the incredibly silly claims that OpenAI was able to respond to easily, including DMCA violations, unfair competition, and unjust enrichment. They base their claims on three types of infringement. The fact that their works were used in training the AI, the LLMs themselves constitute derivative works, and the output, any output, of the LLMs is necessarily infringing. As I said earlier, ignorance of not only copyright law, but of how AI works. As we covered, there is one aspect of this that may actually run afoul of copyright law, and that's the allegation that they downloaded pirated copies of books in the process, but that claim is going to be addressed later. But for everything else, fair use applies, because courts all over the place have recognized that people do get to use copyrighted works for transformative purposes. But the authors don't like that. They don't like that OpenAI is moving to have all of these other allegations dismissed and only go to trial on the piracy charge, quote, Nevertheless, OpenAI still tries to leverage its motion to pre-litigate issues it thinks will carry the day in the future. This is improper on a motion to dismiss and should be disregarded. Their lawyers should be embarrassed to have written that. That's exactly what you do in a motion to dismiss when you think certain complaints aren't valid. A motion to dismiss assumes the questions of fact for the plaintiffs and just asks about the law. Even if every fact alleged were true, would it still be actionable? And OpenAI has made the case in their motion that, no, it isn't, because it doesn't actually violate the law. In other words, what the plaintiffs wrote is table-pounding. And they keep going, quote, Fair use, of course, is an important yet limited feature of U.S. copyright law. No, it is not limited! Read the Constitution! Copyrights are limited! Fair use is the First Amendment! You only have copyright in certain limited ways. Outside of those limits, people can do whatever. Importantly, however, fair use is an affirmative defense. 
and is inappropriate to resolve on a motion to dismiss. Again, ridiculous for the reason I just mentioned. It's a question of law, so if you assume all of the facts alleged, and it still qualifies as fair use, you go ahead and dismiss it. That's how an MTD works. Any judge reading all of this would easily be able to see through it. So I guess now we'll see one of two things. Either the judge will see reason and dismiss everything except the direct infringement claim, or he'll prove to be yet another corrupt federal judge in a district where the fix is in, as we've been seeing all too often. Either way, that makes the plaintiffs this week's... Idiot Well, that wraps up this There's a Lot More to Me Than There Is to Me edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Albert Einstein. Everything that is really great and inspiring is created by the individual who can labor in freedom. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. <laughs>